God, I ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would watch over us as we read your word, that you would be with us, that we would interpret your words correctly. Lord, if there are things that I'm about to say this morning that are not from you, Lord, I ask that you would block them out. Make me not say them. If there's things that I have not said or I don't remember that you want to say, Lord, I ask you to speak them through me. But Lord, I ask that we would dive into your word this morning and wrestle with the truths that are there. That you would use those words to light our hearts on fire to do your word and understand your will. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. I was on, um, was on the web last night on the Google machine, and I was, uh, I was reading um, in CNN, as I do sometimes, just to kind of see what the, what the stories are that are out there. And there was one story that really struck me, and uh, I want you guys all to know, you'd be happy to know, that Target has agreed to stop placing gender-specific signs in the toy aisles. So now, you will all not be oppressed by gender-specific toy aisles. You won't be told that Barbie is a girl toy and that, that Plains Fire and Rescue is a boy toy. Right? That, that, those, those oppressive labels have been removed. Hallelujah. Right? So now we can move into an age when um, we are not forced to identify by our gender. And this, while this is silly and small, it is a symbol of the culture that we live in. We live in a culture that more and more will seek to change the way that we see ourselves. Away from what scripture tells us about ourselves and more towards what Hollywood and academia and liberal elites want us to believe about ourselves. And if you raise the objection that this is wrong, if you say that, that changing your gender or um, engaging in inappropriate activity is wrong, they'll look at you and say, who are you to judge? Okay, who are you to judge? Who are you to judge, Matt? You know, I mean, all sin's equal. You know, all these other things are, are just as bad as gluttony or speeding. Who are you to judge? I'm here to tell you this morning that we have bought into a lie. We have bought into the lie that God sees all sin the same. That God sees all sin the same. And I've said it before. But the reality is that there are some sins that God hates more than others. Now, that's shocking. Now, that's shocking. Before you guys start throwing tomatoes at me, I'm going to get into God's Word and tell you what I mean. God hates some sins more than others. The wages of sin is death. But God does not hate or punish all sin the same. Over, over the centuries, God has interacted with sinful nations. The sinful nations around Israel. He interacted with them. And he came to the Jewish prophets and he would proclaim judgment on nations that were especially evil or wicked. 
In the area surrounding Israel, you had cities like Tyre and Sidon, pagan port cities that practiced every kind of immorality. They were so immoral that other pagan cities would say, man, you don't want to go to Tyre and Sidon. Those places are dens of evil. And so God, through his prophets, proclaimed judgment on them for their wickedness, for their idolatry, for their immorality. We have a, a, another example of this in the Old Testament, the, the town of Sodom, right? The town of Sodom is such a wicked, evil place that when God's angels come to talk to Lot, the people of the town attempt to assault them and rape them. That's how evil and wicked and broken the city is. And even when the people are blinded, they're so sick and so twisted that they keep wandering around trying to find these angels so that they can assault them. That's an evil city. God punished them. God destroyed the city. See, God hates sins, and he hates some sins more than others. And each of these cities was, pl was a plague in the nostrils of God, and he proclaims judgment on them. And in this portion of the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to step into the role of an Old Testament prophet, and he's going to speak out an oracle against several of the cities that he's been preaching in. So if you guys would read with me in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter, or starting in chapter 11, verse 20. I'm going to go ahead and turn to it, actually. That would be good. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven. You will descend in Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. See, he is speaking to cities that he has just spent the last several months doing miracles in. That he's raised the dead, he's healed the sick, he's calmed storms. Jesus has done miraculous, wonderful, incredible things there. And the people's response has been, me. Okay, what else? It has been total disinterest. It has been ambivalence in the face of God. And so Jesus is standing there looking at these cities and saying, you think that you are wise. You think that you are clever and that you are righteous and that you know what God wants. But God has placed his messenger here and you have not followed him. And so it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than it would be for these horrible pagan cities. Because see, God does not hate all sin the same way. 
And he does not punish all sin the same way. And I, I want to be very clear here. The wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. But not all sin is punished the same way in hell. There are levels of punishment. There are some sins that are worse than others. And the real surprise is not that God does not hate all sins equally. It's the sins that he hates the most are not the ones that we would think that he hates the most. See, he is speaking about pagan cities that commit everything that we would think is disgusting and wrong and indicative of a pagan fallen people. He's looking at those cities and he's saying, yes, they will be punished. But guess what? You who think that you are proud, you who think you know everything, that's worse. It is worse to be exposed to the glory of God and respond with ambivalence than it is to be a pagan. You know, sometimes I've noticed that when, when I, share faith, my, I share my faith with somebody, the response always comes back, well, I, I don't know. I don't know that I can believe in, you know, how can I accept Jesus? I mean, what about all these people that have, that have, never, that have never come to know Christ, just never, you know, been exposed? What about the, the person in the, in, the, in the middle of China who's never heard the name of Jesus? I, I just, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can wrap my mind around that. And here's the response that I, that I give them. I don't know what to tell you about the person in China who's never had a chance to accept Jesus. I don't know how we process that. I know God is a good God, and I know what he says, that he is the only way to heaven. But guess what? You have had a chance to respond to Christ. I know what the Bible says about that, that if you have had the opportunity to respond to Christ, if you have had the revelation of God in your presence and you reject him, watch out, buddy. Watch out, because there's judgment coming. God hates sin, but he doesn't hate all sin equally. He, he hates homosexuality, and he hates immorality and idolatry, and he punishes sin, but there is something more. There is something that he hates more than these. And the next, the next portion of Scripture is going to give us an eye into what God truly, truly hates, the thing that He hates the most, the sin that He punishes the hardest. See, despite all the miracles and all the works and all the wonders that Jesus has accomplished, the people in Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum have rejected Him, the Messiah, and now Jesus is about to give them the shocking reason why they have not accepted Him. And it goes to the heart of who they are. If you'll continue in chapter, in uh, verse 25 with me, it says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son will, will reveal Him. That's hard to understand what He's saying there. That's one of those verses that when you read it in Scripture, you go, what is He talking about? How does this even apply? See, when you put it right next to that portion where He's talking about the cities, the truth begins to come out. See, God has hidden the true identity of Jesus from the wise and intelligent people of Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He's hidden it. 
And I know that makes you go, wait a second. I thought this was Jesus who has come so that everybody understands and all Jesus wants is for everybody to know who he is. And here he's, he's praising God that God hid that knowledge. How do we, what do you do with that? But I'm going to tell you this. It is within God's character and God's nature to blind those whom he chooses to judge. This is an aspect of God that we don't like to think about. This is an aspect of God that is scary. But this is an aspect of God that we see throughout the Bible. Pharaoh has his heart hardened by God so that God can make his name great, so that God can humble him and bring Israel out. Time and time again, God will rain down a plague on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will re relent and let the people go, and God will harden his heart so that he can hit him again and hit him again and grind him into the ground because God had decided that Pharaoh would be his tool to make his name great. The ministry of Isaiah, hundreds of years later, the call of Isaiah. God comes to Isaiah and says, go to this people and make their eyes blind and their ears deaf so that they do not turn, so that I can judge them. And this is a, a verse in Isaiah that is quoted over and over again by Jesus. Five or six times Jesus quotes that verse from Isaiah that talks about the hardening of the people's hearts, the closing of their eyes, the closing of their ears. So we have to ask, what is going on here? Why is God doing this? See, Jesus holds the saving knowledge of God. In, in verse 27, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to anyone who the Son reveals himself. And there's this special intimate knowledge between Jesus and God. There is a, a knowledge that transcends just understanding what the Scripture says about him. There is a knowledge that is deeper than intellectual knowledge. There's this concept in the Bible to know someone is an intimate relationship. That's how we always joke about, uh, you know, how Noah knew his wife, right? That's why that word means the relationship between a husband and his wife. But it, it's more than even than that. It's the relationship that God has with Israel, this special emotional tie that goes deep down beyond just head knowledge. It is an intimate understanding of the inward parts of another person. This is the way that Jesus knows the Father. He knows the true essence, the fundamental nature of who God is. This special, secret knowledge of God is not freely available to everyone. Now, let's be clear here. God reveals himself in nature. There is enough knowledge in nature for you to know and understand who God is. Right? The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. In the book of Romans, it talks about how men are without excuse because God has painted his glory across the heavens and he has placed the moral law in the human heart so that we are all convicted for the evil that we do. It is enough knowledge to condemn us, but it is not enough knowledge to save us. See, the knowledge of salvation is wrapped up in the person and identity of Christ only by knowing and understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do, that salvation comes as a free gift, that Christ died on the cross to 
forgive us. Only that knowledge, only that understanding drives us to a place before Christ where we can accept the grace that he has for us. Only that knowledge brings about salvation, and that knowledge is wrapped up in the ministry of Christ. Only the knowledge of Christ and the understanding that he has died for us will save us. And that knowledge is not given to everyone. The saving knowledge of God is given to Jesus, to those who love him and accept him as Lord and who hear and obey him. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said unto them, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the doorway. But it goes deeper than that. Just a few lines more in John 14, 21, he says, He who has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. See, Jesus has been made the gatekeeper by God. You can't get to God unless you go through Jesus. It's not multiple paths. It's not multiple ways. It's not choose your own adventure. It, you don't get to just go out and do your own thing. It is through Christ and through Christ only. Narrow path, small door. That's it. But unless you thought, unless you get drawn into this idea that somehow God is this senile old king and that Jesus has been made the, the, the region who's pulling the strings behind the scenes and he gets to just pick and choose what he wants, we get a deeper reality here. See, Jesus is the only way to God, but only those drawn by the Father can know Jesus. John 6, says, No one can come to me. He's talking about Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. There is something deeper going on here. There is something that is moving behind the scenes that we can't get a grasp on. There is a relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that we cannot fully grasp. God is sovereign, and He calls whom He chooses, but we are all responsible before God. That's the testimony of Scripture. And somewhere above where we can see these two lines cross, and God is whole and unified. In his divine sovereignty, in his position as the ruler of the universe and the architect of all things, God has hidden Jesus in plain sight. And some will receive and some will not. Some will have their eyes open and some will remain blind. And Jesus says, God, the father of all things, I praise you because of this. He doesn't sit there and go, man, God, this is harsh. I wish this was different. God, who I have known from before the beginning of time, I praise you that you have done this, that you have revealed yourself to the humble and the lowly and hidden yourself from the wise. See, God hates all sin, but some sins he hates and punishes worse than others. God hates pride above all things. And so he has structured 
the coming of Jesus in such a way that the proud will be crushed. That you don't get to come to Jesus on your own terms. You don't get to say, hmm, here's a, here's a, a buffet of ideas, and I'm going to take this part from it and that part from it and this part over here, and I'm going to leave this stuff over here because, you know, I'm really the arbiter of all things. I get to decide how things... No, that's not how... He came. He came in such a way that the wise people of Chorazon and Bethsaida and Capernaum who thought that they knew everything, who thought that they had it all down, who thought that they understood how the scriptures came about and what they were supposed to say and that Jesus was supposed to come in on a white horse and kill all the Romans and make Rome under the foot of Israel. He came in a way that was completely the opposite of that. He came as a, as a carpenter, as a working man, as a poor peasant and it blew their mind. He came in a way that because of their heart, they could not comprehend. He fulfilled all the prophecies. Right? He did miraculous, wonderful things, but because he did not come the way that they expected, not the way that the Bible said he was going to come, but the way that they expected for him to come, they couldn't accept it because their idea about the way things were supposed to be was more important to them than what Scripture said about who God would be. And so in verse 28, Jesus tells them, He issues this invitation again. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He is coming to a people who have been weighed down by those who thought that they knew what God wanted to a people that had created hundreds and thousands of rules that had to be followed, a people that had built their entire lives around a concept of holiness and a concept of righteousness that did not match what God's heart was. And he is looking at all of these things and saying, no, come to me all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. He doesn't come to bring a new religion with different rules, harder rules, more intense rules. He comes to free the people from an artificially heavy yoke. And he comes in a way that punishes the pride of the powerful. See, Jesus is praising the Father for revealing His saving knowledge to the weak and the humble, the people that nobody expected to, re to get the word of the Lord first. God has, has, has only those whom the Father calls can see and respond to Christ, and Jesus is sent in such a way that only those who are humble and broken and poor will respond to Him. That's the trap that God has sent, to humble the proud why does, why does Christ exalt in this? Why does He praise this? In 1 Corinthians it says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the proud so that no one 
would boast in anything that was not God. See, if you have a complex system of righteousness, if you think you have all of the answers and that you can do it on your own, you know what you're going to do? You're going to become proud of your effort. You're going to begin to worship your effort. You're going to begin to worship your righteousness. You're a good person. You are in the kingdom of God because you made good decisions. And you're going to look down on everybody around you. But God came to the people in such a way that you could not boast. That you had to rely completely on Him. That you are saved and chosen because God saved you. Sometimes we have this image in our mind. We, get this, we, we talk about Christianity in analogies that you know, we're, uh, we're drowning in the water and God reaches out a pole and we reach out and grab it and He pulls us in. And we have this idea that there is, a, that there is an element of our goodness that's involved in this process and there isn't. Scripture is very clear. You were dead in your sins and yet God raises you up and breathes life into you. He brings you back to life. So that when you stand before God, there is no boasting in your heart. That it is by grace that you've been saved. And nothing else. Brothers and sisters, God set the situation up like this because he is undoing the sin of pride that Adam had. We talk about the sin of Adam over and over and over again, that in the beginning, Adam and Eve chose to be like God. Right? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be like God, because they wanted to be good on their own basis. They wanted to be equal with God, to know the difference between good and evil and be able to choose the good, and the outcome was that they could not that they were imperfect and their pride brought death into the world. And so God has set the situation up so that a person must reject the choice of Adam. He must look at God and say, I cannot be good on my own. I can only be good in the blood of Christ. I can only be saved by the blood of Christ. It is as if God has created a doorway that only a man that is stooping can enter. But when you enter through this doorway, the burden that is placed on you by Jesus is light. If you are truly humble in your heart, if you are truly shorn of your pride, the burden that Christ places on you is easy. You're not seeking your own. You're seeking Christ. You understand who bought you and that there is no worth in you other than that which Christ brings. You're not kicking against the goads, demanding that your life is the way that you want it to be. You understand that you were bought at a price, that you are not your own. and You honor God with the things that you do. See, God breaks the proud and He blesses the humble. He breaks the proud. And the humble He raises up. Brothers and sisters, we have to take this to heart. We love to condemn every sin out there. 
except the one sin that bothers us all. We love to condemn other people's sins. And they are sins. Please don't hear that I'm saying that they're not. But there, are, there is a sin that each of us commits every day. And it is pride. And it is a sin that God hates more than anything else. Pride. It is pride that keeps a man from coming to the knowledge of Christ because he does not want to accept that Christ is the only way to heaven. It is pride that keeps a man from coming to Christ because he does not want something to be the Lord of his life. It is pride that keeps a person from coming to Christ because they don't want to give up their control over their life. You cannot come to Christ on your own terms. You can't come to Christ and maintain part of who you were. That's why we say that a person has to be born again. That's why we baptize people, because it is a symbol that you are dead to who you used to be, that who you used to be is gone, and that something new has been raised up out of the water. You cannot come to Christ in pride. Brothers and sisters, if you are a proud Christian, if you've come to Christ, and you've still got that kernel of pride inside of you, watch out. God will break a proud Christian. And I'm not telling you that because of, because of reading books. I'm telling you that because I was a proud Christian, and God broke me. It is not a pleasant process. You do not want to go through it. There is very th few things as, pleasant as, a Christ as unpleasant as a, as a proud Christian being broken. Don't be a proud Christian. Don't look at the grace that God has given you as something that you've earned. Don't look at yourself as somehow better than other people. You were bought by Christ at a great price. The worth that you have does not come from your deeds. It doesn't come from your family. It doesn't come from your money. It comes from the fact that Christ bought you. And in that, we are all the same. Every child of God is equal in the eyesight of God. We are equally sinful and we are equally redeemed. There is no place for pride there. See, God breaks the proud and He blesses the humble. If you are broken, if your life has not turned out the way that you want it to be, if you have gone down a hundred twisting wrong turns, if you're suffering from 40 years of bad decisions or 18 years of bad decisions or five years of bad decisions, you are the person that the gospel was delivered for. You are the humble and the brokenhearted. You are not beneath the gospel. You are at the cusp of the gospel. If you will just realize that God has come to save you, that you are not somehow unsavable, that you are the most savable. You have been shorn of all of those things that distract from God. If you find yourself at the bottom of a well right now, if you find yourself in the mire trampled by life, I want you to rejoice because you are at the cusp you're at the cusp of salvation. All you have to do is reach out and grasp it. All you have to do is accept the salvation that God has placed in front of you.
God has brought you to the place that you are so that you will accept it. He has opened your eyes so that you can see the reality of your condition. And brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian and you're getting beaten up by this world, I want you to know that God is there. And He is there preserving the humble, carrying the humble. Because as we talked about last week, God uses the humble and broken things of this world to do His will. You are not unusable in the kingdom. You are His preferred tool. So regardless of how you have come here this morning, proud and lost, proud and a Christian, humble and lost or humble as a Christian, know this. God breaks the proud, but He exalts the humble. So be humble and be blessed by God. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you feel the power of God revealing Christ to you in this place this morning, the worst possible thing that you can do is to turn away. The worst possible thing you can do is to walk out those doors and say, well, I'll think about this. We'll see how this goes. Now is the time. Now is the time to be healed. Now is the time to have your life changed. Now is the time to die to who you were and to live for something new. Come forward. We'll pray with you. If you're embarrassed, come and talk to me afterwards. But do not leave this place. Don't leave this question hanging. If you do not have a church home, if you are wandering through this life, I'd invite you to come and join us or go join another church. But find some place that can pour into you, some place that you can grow. Regardless of what you do, though, be humble. And know that Christ humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Please bow your heads with me. Dear sweet Jesus, God, we come to you confessing that each of us has sinned in our pride, that each of us has thought better of ourselves than we should have, that we all have come to you on our own terms with our own desires and our own objectives. God, I ask that you would burn these things away, pleasant or not, that you would break every person in this room so that they can be used for your glory. I ask that you would cleanse us from the sin of wanting our own way, and that you would leave us in a place where we are useful to you, humble and open. And Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.